Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, hey, Cardio Nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Really excited to have you back for the seven-episode nuclear and complementary multimodality imaging series with Cleveland Clinic imaging expert Dr. Wild Jebber and future cardiovascular imager Dr. Erica Hutt, as well as Brigham Imaging Fellow Dr. Eldo Scanoni. Make sure you check out episodes 99, 101, 102, 104, and 109 when we discuss the multimodality imaging for coronary ischemia, coronary microvascular disease, myocardial viability, anomalous coronary arteries and myocardial bridges, as well as cardiac amyloidosis. Today, we get to dive into the multimodality imaging evaluation for cardiac sarcoidosis. As you enjoy this discussion, be sure to refer back to episode 133, the last episode, where we got to discuss a fascinating case of cardiac sarcoidosis with our colleagues from the University of Chicago. And to make sure you get every ounce of teaching from this incredible discussion, make sure you check out incredible notes on the CardioNerds website by Academy Fellow Dr. Hussein Khalid. Friends, we thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Speaker disclosures are available in the episode description. There is no commercial or in-kind support for this activity. And make sure you claim free CME credit using the link in the episode description. And now... Let's do some imaging. We now come to our next patient. Tiresias is a prophet who lives in the underworld. That's actually where he met Odysseus. While showing Odysseus how to get back to Ithaca, Tiresias suddenly collapses without a prodrome and later awakens, feeling fatigued and confused. He was subsequently brought in by a cardiac ambulance to the ED, where EKG showed normal sinus rhythm with a 2 to 1 AV block, a left bundle branch block, and frequent PVCs. Naturally, he was admitted for a syncope evaluation, and telemetry that night showed multiple runs of non-sustained ventricular tachycardia with intermittent complete heart block. He was taken to the CICU by a diligent fellow who promptly threw in a transvenous pacer. Chest x-ray shows proper lead placement with no signs of pneumothorax, but it did show peculiar bilateral hyalur fullness. Now, as a young man, Theresius is totally baffled. He's been healthy all his life, save for the occasional unexplained painful bumps on his legs. The fellow reassures him that he's in good hands, and the EP team would likely place a permanent pacemaker the very next day. Notably, he's not been exposed to AV nodal blockers, and electrolytes, serum lime antibody, and ACE levels are all negative. So Hefe, what's going on with him, and does nuclear imaging play a role? So this is a, a, a healthy person presenting with syncope, the uh, sudden syncope we recovered from. The, the things that go into your mind is this cardiac or non-cardiac, but this is a, a cardiac podcast, so we'll stick with the cardiac side of it and uh, we'll go from there. So be, before we, we start doing a lot of fancy testing, let's do the, the normal thing. So you're looking at the EKG, you describe a 2 to 1 AV block, you describe the frequent arrhythmia, uh, arrhythmia in this person, left bundle branch block. So this person who's young with no prior history of any uh, other issue has evidence of conduction distance disease. So this is infrahistian disease. This is not normal as unless you're dealing with ischemic heart disease in the general population, much older age that can present too, but this person is active and healthy, so it shouldn't be an issue. So we start thinking beyond ischemic heart disease. 
So the first test, of course, the best tool we have in cardiology is echocardiography because it's non-invasive. It gives us an idea about what's happening with the structures of the heart, the pumps, the valves, and all these uh, things, the pericardium, the aorta. So I would do just first a screening echo. And a screening echo on this person is going to show you either a normal function, everything is fine, or it's going to show you some areas of patchy wall motion abnormalities that are not or are consistent with CAD. It's going to be a little bit difficult here because of the left bundle branch block. They're pacing now, you're pacing this person. So it's going to be very hard to expect a normal synchronous contraction contraction of the left ventricle and the right ventricle. So you're going to be a little bit of dyssynchrony because of that. But be it as it may, when we did the echo on this person here, we found that he has wall motion abnormalities with wall thinning in the basal septum and in the basal and mid-inferolateral wall and anterolateral wall. Even with that with what we call characteristic or pathognomonic or very consistent, whichever emphasis point you want to hit, consistent with potentially sarcoid, if you tie it with the hyalur filling on the chest X-ray, I think it is very imperative that we rule out CAD in these patients. Now, given that your patient is young, you can do it the easy way, you can do it the traditional way. The easy way is to send this person for a, a CTA. You can do a CTA of the coronary arteries if the coronary arteries are open and happy. Uh, down now, we're dealing with an inflammatory process with resultant scar. If the CTA is uh, showing us obstructive CAD, then we have to go down that path. Now, there is a bit of overlap with humans, and we can have multiple diseases uh, or multiple things threatening our life, but it's rare. So I will start with the CTA. If you don't have a CTA or you're not comfortable with CTA or the age group is not conducive to do a CTA because of calcifications and all these things, you can go for a coronary angiogram. But it's it's very important to start with that step before you start going down the fancy part of doing uh, PET scanning or MRI or any other things because there is, again, a lot of overlap and you can miss CAD at your peril and the peril of the patient. So this is what I think about this. I, I start with an anatomic test to make sure there is, start with an echo, of course, then go for an anatomic test to rule out obstructive CAD. And from that point on, you can choose an MRI to look for scarring or inflammation, or you can do the PET pathway and look for scarring and inflammation, both in the heart and extracardiac, in the chest, in the lungs, in the liver, spleen, you know, guts and all this stuff. You know, I, I think that people always try to put these things against each other. Should we do a PET first? Should we do an MRI first? Should, which one is better than the other? I think in a, in a way they're complementary. MRI tends to be a very good test initially, but I don't think it's a very good test to keep repeating. Uh, PET, if you're planning on therapy, is one of the probably the coolest tests we have because if you find inflammation, you can follow that inflammation and follow whether you suppressed it or not with serial PET, especially if you decide to go on and put a pacemaker and ICD and all these things. People talk about now we can do MRI with all these things on. You can do them, yes, but your diagnostic yield becomes a challenge with more uh, hardware you put in. So in this patient, we did a, a CTA and the CTA was completely normal, right? No coronary disease. And now we we sent the patient because this is the toolbox I have, which is a PET. We decide to send patient this patient for a PET. Now, Aldo, you're at now at a different institution than ours. So how do you guys do the PETs on these patients and just walk us through the initial PET? This is not the follow-up PET. This is the initial PET on this person. Absolutely. It's key to understand how to prepare the patient for the PET FDG for, for cycle, what we call the cycle protocol. We should start a little bit of a little bit of physiology and, and why are we doing these things. So when, when you're imaging the heart with FDG, which is a glucose analog, so although the heart 
primarily functions with fatty acid. It uptakes a little bit of glucose as well, especially those areas that are either ischemic or hibernating. So that's why it's so important to rule out uh, any obstructive disease before embarking in this particular testing. So the second challenge is that we want the FDG to primarily be taken out by potential inflammatory cells within potential granulomas. So how we can make the heart not take any glucose. And that's where the preparation is key. So what we do here at the pregames is that we advocate for a prolonged fasting, you know, around 10 to 12 hours. And that prolonged fasting is preceded by two meals that are hot in fat and proteins and has no carbohydrates at all. And the whole idea is that you're trying to switch the metabolism because there's no ability or there's no offer of glucose at all. So the heart would switch the metabolism to purely fat. So by the time you inject the patient with the SCG, so the heart would not or the myocardium would not be picking it up or hopefully would not be picking it up any, any FDG because we'll be using fat as a fuel. So it would only be the potential inflammatory cells within the granuloma that are going to be there picking it up and you can see it with the imaging. So that preparation, I think, is key. It's important that the medication, especially if it's in the unit, is not taking anything by vein that has any dextrose. So we need to be really careful about that and making sure that any of the food that is the patient got the, before the fasting has nothing to glucose so, so we can get a nice preparation. Because the worst case scenario, if you don't do that properly, what you're going to end up having is having some uptake in the myocardium that you don't know if it's, it's actually related to the inflammatory cells or it's just normal myocardial uptake or what we call non-specific. So I think that's some of the, the key points in the preparation. So it's pretty standard. We pair resin perfusion along with the FTG imaging, and, and we try to avoid at all costs doing stress imaging at the same time or at the same time or same encounter as the the sarcoid imaging because we don't want to induce ischemia that could potentially induce FTG uptake by the myocardium. So those are kind of in big concepts what we do. Uh, I know the other centers use heparin prior to the scanning and, and the whole idea is the heparin induced lipolysis. And the concept is that if you give that just prior to the scan, you increase the offer of fatty acids to the myocardium. You're going to, again, re-emphasize or keep pushing that fatty metabolism to the myocardium. And I know at the, at the clinic where we're doing th that when I was there and then we were getting kind of good results. Here at the Brigham, even without that, we're, we're getting good images with minimal locations that we have this non-specific uh, uptake. That's very helpful, Aldo. So, you know, we go through all this prep with a ketogenic diet, perhaps intravenous heparin right before the study to suppress myocardial FDG uptake so that whatever FDG uptake we see on the PET is reflecting uptake from white blood cells, right? That would reflect inflammation. And of course, you know, there might be some other non-sarcoid, non-granulomatous inflammation causes of white blood cells, like perhaps, you know, like a different kind of myocarditis. Another situation we had uh, previously on the show was a wonderful case from Northwestern where they, you know, they had a patient with a EF of 40% coming in with BT storm. And they thought this patient may have sarcoid, so they did a sarcoid PET. And the entire myocardium diffusely lit up, so they thought, oh, maybe this was an inadequate PrEP. And so then they repeated the study, and the entire myocardium lit up again. Then they did a cardiac MRI, I believe, and it showed that, yeah, there actually is inflammation. And subsequently, because of family history and the overall picture, um, sent the patient for genetic testing, and it turned out to be a DSP definite plaque and cardiomyopathy, which is a left-dominant arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy, and in a small cohort of patients in a series earlier this year that can present with these like acute bouts of cardiac injury with an inflammatory picture, troponin leak, chest pain, that all for all the world looks like ACS. And then also, I think immediately post-MI, if you do an FTG PET, then you know, you'll just have uh, inflammatory uptake from the post-MI situation and not necessarily reflect sarcoid uptake. 
But when we do this, the sarcoid FDG PET, we also do it with a resting perfusion PET scan, rubidium or ammonia. So Hefe, what information does that add to the FDG PET in diagnosing the sarcoid? So the most important point, I think, is Aldo hit on those on some of these points, which is the prep of the patient. So first, rule out coronary artery disease and then the preparation of the patient. I cannot talk enough. We can spend two hours talking about how important is preparation of the patient. If you do these patients without prep, you're going to end up with a very confusing test. So, you know, I just have to say one of my pearls of wisdom, if you want to say that. So years ago, when uh, Stalin was uh, ruling Russia or the Soviet Union, so there was a very famous uh, Russian poet, and that Russian poet, Akhmatova, she was famous. He loved her poetry. He loved everything about her. And she was always, she was a dissident, but she was careful about not criticizing him. But she's always, you know, saying wonderful things about communism and all these things. And one day, you know, he put her on house arrest and made her life very miserable. So his advisors went to him and told him, you know, why would you do that? You know, she loves she loves you. She loves the Soviet Union. She's doing everything, you know. So he said, it's not important for you to love the Soviet Union. It's important for the Soviet Union to love you back. And that's the same thing here when we talk about pet. You love pet, but the pet has to love you back. And it has to love you back in a way where you have to know how to approach this test with first some humility about its limitations, which you touched on. One is inflammation is universal. So we don't know, we cannot tell one inflammation type from another. Two, the prep is extremely important. Now, Erica, I know you, uh, we're going to answer your question, uh, Amit, in a second about, about the PET specificity and all this stuff. But Erica, you, you recently published a, a study that you've done with, uh, with Paul Kramer here about how to prep these patients. Can you just tell us a little bit about it, just briefly, so we can set the stage of how we use it here? Of course, Dr. Jaber. Thank you. And actually, Aldo's description of PrEP looks very similar to, I think, what we used to do, but we're trying to transition to this new dietary preparation that Dr. Kremer is actually trying to standardize at our institution. So what we found is that many patients actually fail to suppress myocardium with the standard preparation they used. So that fasting for 12 hours and the low carbohydrate, high fatty acid diet was not really well completed by the patient. So we know that the compliance is not 100%. And that is why he tried to standardize it in this other manner, which is with the use of a ketone shake. So it's basically a baby formula, like Abbott's baby formula based on ketones. And he started doing it on patients, mainly inpatient, because there was more control over those patients. So giving the ketone formula, the breakfast before the study, lunch before the study, and after lunch, NPO for the study the following day. And we've actually seen like on significant amount of patients that had failure to suppress myocardium with just the standardized diet that was with this new protocol, we've been able to adequately suppress glucose metabolism in the myocardium and see the inflammation. So I think it's it's something that we're working on reporting in a higher volume of patients to see if it's obviously not just random luck that we're seeing this or if it's actually working. So hopefully we'll be publishing something pretty soon. So Erica, that, that's very interesting and definitely anything that we can do to improve the preparation prior to a, a petsarcoid is, is, is going to be always well received. I think at one point that uh, I often see in clinical practice is those patients that are in the unit that either they're intubated or an NG tube. And yes, yeah, certainly I think the most 
important part of the preparation is the prolonged fasting, but we often get asked how we can feed these patients, you know, high fat, high protein, perhaps kind of meals. And what we have done here is just through the NG tube, we we have provided them with some sort of oil preparation, olive oil, and, and you can, you know, provide them with that as a change of, for a potential meal. And we follow that with the prolonged fasting. I think the other important concept is in going back to you guys' new preparation or, or proposal is that it's often a challenge for, for patients that uh, are vegetarian or vegan and in terms of how you make them follow the diet, given that, you know, the, the mainstream in terms of this diet preparation is, is meat, is, is easy for someone who eats meat to follow them, but, you know, for, for people that prefer to stay away from those is, is hard. And we often, you know, rely on either tofu and, 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 and oil it's very challenging to come up with a kind of a good meal that can replace kind of the classic meat and so forth. So I think it will be very interesting what you guys come up with. And, and maybe it's, it's kind of a great solution for those who want to do a preparation without having get meat and some of these kind of proteic and animal products. Agree, although this is extremely important. Then, then we move to the question you asked earlier, which I digress from, uh, because I want to stress the importance of preparation. This is the test without a good preparation is a useless test. So it will not love you back. You will love the test, but the test will not love you back. So I, I heard somebody say that a test without a good preparation is preparation to fail. That's, that's uh, that, not only preparation to fail, fail yourself and fail the patient. And then you end up going down a path, which is not actually, it's not actually, it's detrimental for the, for the, for the patient because either you miss the diagnosis completely or you misdiagnose the patient with sarcoids and end up treating them with highly toxic medications and then you end up with a big problem. And you make it difficult for your colleagues if they're reading these tests after you in the future to, to compare the tests safely. So you, all these steps are extremely important, making the right diagnosis, making it easily, making it correct, and setting the stage for a proper follow-up and proper treatment regimen with proper follow-up with imaging. If you don't do it right the first time, I think you can end up with a very big problem. So preparation, preparation, preparation. Now, we move to why do we do perfusion images on these patients? So again, because of the nonspecific cardiac uptake of FDG, FDG is normally taken by the heart, even in normal situations. Although we talk about fatty acid metabolism and all these things, you still have FDG uptake of the heart. So we start with a resting image to, one, define any perfusion defects. So if you have perfusion defects, that's actually kind of a good news for the imager, not for the patient, but for the imager. So uh, if we have no perfusion defects, everything is normal. That tells us that there is no scar almost in the heart. If you end up with situations like that, which we'll talk about in a second, that decreases the specificity of the test because now you're going to image with FDG after that. So you have a normal perfusion, complete and normal perfusion. Now you're going to see areas of FDG uptake with normal perfusion. Now, are we seeing inflammation before we're seeing scar in this situation? Or are we seeing just normal pattern of FDG uptake in the heart? Because the heart will take up FDG. And our, despite all our efforts to suppress that by giving them the diet and all these things, we can still fail to suppress. And we can still fail to suppress, not uniformly, we can fail to suppress locally. Let's say in the areas of papillary muscle, in the areas of the basal septum, in the areas where we think they're sarcoid typical. So those are the difficult cases I think we face, is when we have totally normal perfusion but some patchy FDG uptake. So let's say we do a perfusion study, and now we have, as we saw on the echo in this patient, basal septum has perfusion defect. The basal inferolateral wall and mid-inferolateral wall have a nice defect. So now we have defects on the perfusion images. 
Now we go to the FTG images and we have two scenarios if we're successful in suppressing the FTG uptake. We can have uh, no uptake in those segments, FTG uptake, and that will tell us that these areas are scarred because we have now a perfusion defect with a matching FTG defect. So these are areas of scar. Now, those patients can be prone to have arrhythmias, of course, can be prone to have, especially if it's a basal septum, in those areas to have a conduction defects. So that's a typical what you want to see, and we'll be glad you saw it because now you're matching the whole history with the electric side with the uh, imaging. Or you can have a, a more hopeful situation where you can see defects in the inferior septum, defects in the inferior lateral wall, and now you see enhanced FTG uptake in those segments. So you say, okay, good. Now we have areas of inflammation in the heart and the inferior septum, inferior inferior lateral wall. So now your challenge is uh, these are areas of inflammation. We're very happy. Now you saw also areas of inflammation, which is important. We didn't talk about that. Every time we do sarcoid imaging as an initial image at the Cleveland Clinic with PET, we do a whole body sarcoid image to pick up extra cardiac sarcoid. Because if you have extra cardiac sarcoid and we have conduction of humanity, then we have cardiac involvement, even if we don't see it on images. So in this patient, we saw the hyalur lymphadenopathy light up. Sometimes we see a lot of mesenteric adenopathy that lights up. Sometimes we see things all over the body. So that's important also to, to pick up. So we did that study. We did a rest perfusion image with rubidium, as we do it generally here. We have access to one-year rubidium, but we do rubidium. And then we do FTG. We saw inflammation in inferior infralateral wall and basal septum. Now, the challenge is what to do with this patient, because you have temporary wire pacing on this patient. Do you start treating them and hope for recovery? of the conduction, or do you go, and how long do you wait? We don't know. <laughs> you know, temporary wires cannot stay in for weeks. Or do you start, just go ahead, and because the patient had an event, you go ahead and just put a combination of a pacemaker and ICD, and then what's the ejection fraction, all these things. So with the with the rest perfusion image, also you can get the ejection fraction on this patient. You can get an idea about what's happening with the RV function on these patients. A lot of patients with pulmonary sarcoid will have uh, bad RVs too because of pulmonary hypertension and things like that. So you can see those things by PET in addition of echo also. So that's the gist of, of why we do rest perfusion images. What kind of results you can see with the PET. You can see if you're successful in myocardial suppression, you can see either uh, scarring or inflammation. And just a, a quick clarification. So if I see a perfusion defect and a matching FTG uptake, then I imagine that can mean one of two things. Either there's inflammation and there's also, you know, already scar there, or there's inflammation and because of the edema, microvascular compression, there's a perfusion defect, but that territory is not necessarily dead and scarred and is salvageable with uh, anti-inflammatory. Is that fair that there it can go two ways? I would say that's a difficult question to answer. The difficult thing with PET is, although it has a very good spatial resolution, but we cannot tell subendocardial from the rest of the myocardium. So just think about anything we see as a continuum right? So you can be having leftover inflammation in tissue that's below the spatial resolution of what we can see by PET. You can have this combination things. Actually, I just recently read a PET with, with Erica just last Thursday, where we said there is a combination of ischemia and hibernation in that territory, because you can have both. You can have hibernation and uh, scar in the same territory. Remember, these are islands of things, and we're trying to be all or none, and it's not, it's not that easy. So you can have islands of scar and islands of inflammation. You can have islands of normal tissue and islands of inflammation. Now, if you see normal perfusion and inflammation, you can have that too. So you can have all these things, but we're trying to be here more binary in our thinking, which is not fair for, for the uh, normal human body to function in. The human body doesn't function in binary things. So that's why your question is important, but 
the easiest things, if you refer to the to the original paper from Brown Blankstein about how to diagnose these entities, the easiest ones are if you have a matching defect, you have a perfusion defect and matching FDG defect, then that's SCAR. And the next easier one is if you have a defect by perfusion and active inflammation in the same areas of the perfusion defects, that's inflammation. And everything else is difficult to read. Now, the easiest one to read is if you have a normal perfusion and you have no uptake whatsoever in the myocardium. And that's easy too. That's very helpful. And like, I think many yes and no questions in medicine, the best answer is that it's complicated. Thank you, Hefe. That's a great explanation. And you already explained this previously, but you have a patient that comes in with a complete heart block or uh, VT, and you want to rule out ischemic heart disease first. And in a perfect world, we do that with a CTA or a coronary angiogram. But you know that many of these patients that come to the cardiac ICU have renal dysfunction. And so then we're dealing with a situation where the physician wants to rule out ischemia with uh, a PET stress rest, and then also sarcoid given the high clinical suspicion. So as Aldo alluded before, we don't like doing those tests the same day because there could be ischemic memory and you could have FDG uptake in areas of resting perfusion defect. So how, how do we go around that? And is there a way we could actually answer both questions with PET Again, it's complicated. So and that's why I always pray when I'm reading one of these pets that the patient had an atomic study before, because that makes my life, your life, everybody's life easier. So if if we do arrest stress and then FDG, now it's important, again, Aldo talked about ischemic memory and stuff, and it's important not to also do a treadmill stress test because a lot of, sometimes you get these patients and they do a treadmill stress test. Let's say you have an ammonia, access to ammonia, do a treadmill ammonia. Now what you have is you have the uh, skeletal activity of the FDG. And you try to image these patients with FDG later, and now you all you see is the lighting up of the, of the musculoskeletal system, not the heart. So that you have to be careful of not doing also. These patients should not go and engage in a running marathon or, or even any strenuous physical activity before you do FDG on them, because that can be also enhanced in the musculoskeletal system. So you prefer patients as a patient in the hospital with bed rest, getting the ketone shake that you give them, and then come down for the FDG. Now, in general, we don't do a treadmill on these patients. We do oregadenosine PET on these patients. So if they had an atomic study, it's easy. If you see ischemia in these patients, you can attribute that to microvascular disease, to the inflammation. And we've seen, we have many, many cases where we do rest stress and then FDG for sarcoid, where they have normal coronary arteries. And we've seen ischemia in the inferolateral wall, anterolateral wall, uh, in segments that can match circumflex or can match RCA territory. And that can be attributed to edema and inflammation in those areas, and therefore you're not able to visodilate properly with ragadenosin and then end up with an uh, optic. Now, the difficult part, if you induce ischemia in these areas and then you can see FDG uptake in those areas, is this what Aldo was talking about as ischemic memory? Now, you can avoid doing that by staging the test. You can do a rest FDG on day one, and then uh, you do the stress test on the day two. So you do the testing on day two. So that by then you, you avoid that kind of uh, mishmash things and stuff like that. Now, if, you know, I guess you're keeping the patient in the hospital and all these other things. But you can play a little bit around and, and then stage your test in, in two different days by doing the rest in FTG day one to avoid the ischemic memory. So ischemic memory is basically when you induce ischemia, whether with ragadenosin or whether with exercise, and you go ahead and you do FDG afterwards, let's say half an hour, 20 minutes later, or 30 minutes later. Now, you, if you are 
lucky and you have induced real ischemia, you have switched the metabolism from fatty acid to glucose, and you go to inject glucose, that switch is not quick. So it happens over, let's say, minutes or whatever, but it doesn't go away over minutes. It can persist. So you go to inject FTG. Now you're picking up the ischemia or the switch from fatty acid to FTG that happened much earlier. And that's what we call ischemic memory. This has been published and studied and talked about before. And actually, in, in reading normal pets for ischemia, it can be very reassuring. So if you end, happen to do a patient with rest, stress and FTG for ischemia, not for sarcoid, and you saw the areas that induced ischemia, you saw they have FTG, you know this is not an artifact. You know this is actually real. So it can be actually an insurance policy on reading the stress test. So the, I like it sometimes when we do it that way because that's what we do it. It increases the certainty in what we call the ischemia. So it's not a lateral artifact from breathing or from reconstruction of the images or CT superimposition on the on the transmission images and the emission images and things like that. So that's ischemic memory. But in general, we, we like to do REST and FTG alone and get away with it. This concept of ischemic memory increasing FTG uptake is fascinating. And I'm remembering, Erica, in an earlier discussion when you said that it's just so amazing that you can understand what's happening at the cellular, subcellular, mitochondrial level with nuclear functional imaging. It's just, it's really fascinating. So going back to our patient, you know, these patients with sarcoidosis, their manifestations, right, depend on the the distribution, patchiness, extent, severity of inflammation scar, right? So you range in your clinical manifestations from heart block, ventricular arrhythmias, you can get atrial arrhythmias, heart failure, uh, a multitude of causes of pulmonary hypertension, possibly with ensuing core pulmonary RV failure. These patients can get pretty sick, right? And so you may see them on the first encounter in the ICU. And I'm remembering, again, we, we talked about this a little bit in the earlier discussion, but our esteemed panel here, Erica Yu, Aldo, Dr. Jaber, wrote an article about the multitude utilities of nuclear imaging in ICU patients. So do you want to talk a little bit about the use of nuclear imaging, just in you know how it's relevant in patients with conduction disease and arrhythmia that may land in the ICU? course. And this is actually a paper that is about to be published and Aldo is the leading author on it. And as we've discussed previously, the advantages that nuclear imaging has over other imaging modalities like cardiac MRI is the fact that there's no interference with intracardiac devices. So a temporary pacemaker like in this patient wouldn't interfere with the image as it would with uh, cardiac MRI. There's no need to have normal renal function or normal hepatic function. So there's no limitations. And the test is actually a very quick test. So even patients that are intubated or have devices like intraoretic balloon pumps that we've discussed before can go to the nuclear lab safely with adequate transport, etc., and not have to be there forever. If they have hemodynamic instability, you can take them out of the scanner pretty quickly, which is not the case with the cardiac MRI. So all those things, I think, favor nuclear imaging in the critically ill patient. However, we always try in a patient with cardiac sarcoidosis to get a cardiac MRI before putting in a device. So if we happen to be lucky and the patient doesn't have any hemodynamic instability or any unstable arrhythmias, then... I think at the clinic, at least, we, we encourage getting that initial cardiac MRI that El Jefe just mentioned, that we, we always like to have that initial test that is very helpful in them. The units are becoming more complex nowadays, and we're seeing very sick patients, completely different to what's in the past of just a coronary unit. Now it's a really complex cardiac intensive care unit, so nuclear imaging can help you in identify 
what's what's going on with the patient, either sarcoid or infective endocarditis or you know viability, potential ischemia, and select a group of patients that that you need that information to move on in care. So I think I think it's, that's relevant. So now that we've discussed the utility of sarcoid PET in the evaluation of cardiac sarcoidosis. Aldo, why don't you tell us about other imaging modalities that are useful to delineate cardiac sarcoidosis? Uh, absolutely, Erica. I think this is kind of an important topic. Before we get into how we use the different modalities, one question that always comes up is, is when do I need to do this? When do I trigger uh, a workup for patients with either sarcoid or, or suspicious for sarcoid? From a big overview, I think if you have a patient that has known extracardiac sarcoid and that patient presents with either palpitations or arrhythmia or syncope or presyncope, has any new abnormalities in the ECG or any new findings on the echocardiogram, that's already enough for you to, to go ahead and, and interrogate if the patient has any cardiac involvement. The second group of patients is those that even if they don't have history of sarcoid, they present with in a clinical scenario that is very concerning for sarcoid. And we're talking about people who present with high degree AB block as the patient that we're seeing here. And they have no other potential cause, especially those Joan Fox, you know, especially those uh, under the age of 60. Uh, similar way, those, those patients presenting with ventricular tachycardia or VT storm, and, and there's no clear explanation for, for that. I think that's another scenario that is useful to interrogate the presence of, of, of sarcoid, even if the patient doesn't have a history of extracardiac sarcoid. And as we're going to see at the end, in certain scenarios, you would incline to do one versus the other modality, depending on what was the presentation of the patient. But, you know, getting into the modalities, we'll, we'll zoom up uh, at the end. So I think Hefe pointed out, echocardiography is a foundation of imaging for us in cardiology. And an easy test that we can do at the bedside, easy, quick, no radiation, and give us a glimpse of what's going on. And you can, you can identify findings that can be suggestive of sarcoid in echocardiography. But I think the, the most important concept to understand here is that the echo is not sensitive nor specific. And in fact, even if you have a, a relatively normal echo, the negative predictive value of echocardiography is only 32%. So by no means you can say, oh, no, echo is normal, we're done. This patient doesn't have sarcoid. So, but if you find uh, abnormalities such as either low EF, uh, we have this common pattern of either uh, basal septal dyskinesis or thinning, which you often see in, in these patients with sarcoid, especially those who present with you know, a complete heart block or high degree block. The other area that uh, sarcoid likes is the basal and ferrolateral, as Hefe pointed out, and you can see the same similar pattern, like this kind of really weird bite kind of thinning of the of the wall which is looks not coronary in a coronary distribution which the area is thin and dyskinetic then uh, you need to increase your suspicion that this is probably or could be a presentation of sarcoid there's some data out there in terms of strain there's a lot of debate there's some data suggesting that you can use radial strain to discriminate sarcoid, but then there's some other data saying that it's not radial strain, but it's actually longitudinal and circumferential strain that can help you in that. Uh, I think although there's that out there, I think you cannot hang your head on, on, on just strain. And I think it's, it's a clinical integration with the imaging and, and, and using echo as a first step just to kind of lead you to the following imaging. You know, I think the, the two big tests in, in the assessment of potential cardiac sarcoid, as we have been uh, discussing, first is PET with FDG, rest, perfusion, and FD imaging. On the other side, cardiac MRI has proven to be a very powerful and very uh, useful uh, technique in patients that can go through uh, an MR. 
As a rule of thumb, and, and kind of Eric already kind of pointed out a little bit about that, the strength of MR is it has a high negative predictive value. So in those folks that we have, let's say, extracardiac sarcoid, but, you know, they have some palpitation, there's some suspicions, but, you know, the presentation is not like slam dunk. And having an MRI is important because if you have a completely normal MRI, you know, that test provides you, a, as I said, a high negative predictive value for the presence of cardiac involvement. And, and what do we look for in cardiac MRI? Well, what we look is, is for signs of infiltration. So MRI can provide you with, you know, again, all the visualization of the cardiac function, dyskinesis, akinesis, well thinning, similar to what you get in echo, but also provide you with the opportunity to look for potential myocardial edema, focal or diffuse. And although we can do that, in all honesty, the, the uh, T2 imaging, which is what we use for, for edema along with other, other sequences, is not necessarily the best. And when you compare uh, uh, myocardial edema inflammation with MR compared to PET, PET is definitely a winner. But we have ways to look for edema with T2 imaging. And, and we're looking in, in circuit the presence of these patchy focal areas of increased signal in, in T2-weighted imaging that could suggest there's some areas of edema of inflammation. The strength of the MR is the capacity to identify areas of infiltration. And, and we do that by uh, using late gadolinium enhancement. So we inject uh, the gadolinium and we wait, you know, 10, 15 minutes to that the gadolinium to really get into the myocardium. And then in the areas that you have either inflammation or scarring, you're going to see that the myocardium is going to take up more gadolinium. It's going gonna, it's gonna to light up. But that can happen with any inflammation or any fibrosis. How we can tell if, if we're in the presence of potential sarcoidosis? Well, so... The, the classic pattern of sarcoidosis is, is the presence of uh, a very intense gallon uptake, which is patchy. There's focal, ideally multifocal. That in, will increase your kind of your certainty. But also you see that that area of the wall, instead of being thin out, is actually expanded. If you think about it, when you have an infarct and you have fibrosis, you have replacement fibrosis. So what that means is the myocardium, you lose the, the myocyte and that's replace with collagen and you replace the myocardium and the myocardium thins out. When you have an infiltration, you, you basically put more stuff. You stuff the myocardium and the myocardium, even though have a lot of gadolinium, but that gadolinium is going to the inflammation, to the scarring, to the inflammatory cells and everything that actually doesn't necessarily replace, but actually expand the myocardium. So, so the classic pattern kind of the textbook is that one that is, is focal involving multiple regions. And also you see that it expands the myocardium and there's some degree of association with edema on T2 weighted imaging. The challenge is here is that, yeah, we all like to have that kind of classic pattern, but that doesn't ha happen often. And, and sarcoid is kind of the TB, the tuberculosis that we have in medicine that can present as anything. Sarcoidosis is a TB of cardiology. So sarcoidosis can present in any pattern. So you can have linear, you know, LGE, can have uh, more diffuse or, or, or areas of insertion point of the RV. So it can present with a variety of, of LGE and not necessarily the classic you know, multifocal, expansive kind of LGE. So, so that really add to the complexity of interpreting cardiac sarcoidosis. So, so that's why when we look at cardiac MR, yes, it has a high negative risk value. If it's totally normal, you are, you, know, you can be reassured that most likely this patient has nothing. But if you have, of course, a very classic pattern, then you are highly suspicious of having sarcoid. But if you're in the middle, like, you know, a little patchy here, but not classic, then you still have a little, some degree of uncertainty. 
And that's why when we look or we talk about advanced imaging, we talk and we say that the MR and PET FTG are actually complementary. It's not that the one is better than the other one. They look at different things and then actually they're more powerful when you use them together. For instance, if you see a, a patient that you see these you know, uh, focal areas of uh, LGE, which is ex- expansive a little bit, and you do an, an, an FTG pad, you see there's that area is lighting up, but there are other areas as well that are lighting up with maybe some areas of perhaps, uh, you know, perfusion defects, and you see extra cardiac lighting up on pad, then, you know, your, your certainty of the diagnosis goes up. On the other area where you see these areas of, you know, some LGE, but then uh, there's no FTG on pad and there's no extra cardiac, then it's a little bit harder to kind of come up with the with the diagnosis. The other challenge is that, I mean, in the past, we have talked about stages of the disease and we traditionally have described like maybe you have inflammation initially, that inflammation can create a perfusion defect from the inflammation itself, microvascular dysfunction and so forth. And maybe you transition into, you know, a little bit of inflammation scar. And then finally you have end stage, you have all scar out and you you can even get to that point where you have thinning of the wall because scar is, is what predominates. But now we have seen that you know, rather than stages, this might be actually patterns of disease. And, and it's not necessarily that linear, although there's some linearity on the background. But for the most part, you can see patients that present with one pattern, you treat them and that pattern changes, and then the, the, the disease can come back in a different pattern. And, and it's, it's adding to the complexity of the disease and our understanding from an imaging standpoint in there. So the way that we incorporate all this finding, I think it's important to, you know, because as you can see, it's very complex. And, and, and looking at the image and interpreting the images, but also is even more complicated to report this to the clinician. And I think going back to what our Hefe said, I think the initial paper by Ron, and, and which kind of tried to get at this and try to determine what the, the likelihood of disease based on patterns. And it, that's a good way to talk and to have a common language. And so basically what you're trying to do is when you report, you say something like, you know, a, a cardiac sarcoidosis could be unlikely, could be possible, could be probable, or could be highly probable. And again, and we're going to talk a little bit later um, about how you make the diagnosis. So this is only the imaging part. So you need to integrate clinical factors, the presence of biopsy proven extracardic or so forth. We will go over that. But, but when you report the imaging, you're going to say that, for instance, cardiac sarcoidosis is unlikely when, let's say, you do your FTG PET perfusion, you have no perfusion defect, you have no FTG. So that's unlikely. The same, the counterpart for MRI will be something like you have completely normal function. You see no, no LGE, no edema. So it's totally normal. Uh, MRI, so the cardiosaccharide in that case is, is unlikely. On the other trend of, of, of the scale, you have a, a case of highly probable. And by the way, highly probable is more than 90% chance that you have it. So that's when we see the classic multifocal, non-contiguous perfusion defect with uh, associated FTG uptake uh, that we already referred to uh, on PET. And then on cardiac MRI, you'll see this multifocal LGE expansile, very intense LGE in, in common areas like the inferolateral, the, the, the basal septum, and so forth. So the, the, the challenge is in the middle, in those possible or probable. Because in, in let's say in the possible, which is at, at 10 to 50% chance that you might have cardiac sarcoid based on imaging alone. In PET, you might have maybe it's just a single perfusion defect, but no, no FDG. Or you have a perfusion defect, but you have a, you know, a spot of FDG. So that's very challenging because just, just to say, yes, you have, you don't have sarcoid because it's kind of an equivocal in a way finding and only give you a certainty of 10 to 50%. Similar for, for cardiac MR, you can have one focal area, which is of LGE, which is not too intense. 
it doesn't have the classic patterns. Maybe you have another possibility, uh, a diagnostic possibility for that. So again, it's a possible, similar to the probable. So the, it's, a, it's kind of scale, which really adds uh, to the complexity of reporting these findings. And, and I think you have to rely on clinical presentation. You have to rely on these kind of categories and actually combining the PET and the, and the cardiac MRI findings to actually come up with a, a conclusion in these patients. You know, sarcoidosis really is such a pristine example of the value of complementary multimodality imaging. We think of it classically as a pathological diagnosis, but of course, endomyocardial biopsy is insensitive because of the patchy nature of the disease. And even with imaging guidance or electrical mapping guidance, the, the false negative rate is still too high. And the utility of the different imaging modalities tracks with the pathophysiology, right? You have an antigenic trigger on top of a genetic or epigenetic predisposition. You develop granulomatous inflammation with giant cells, and the distribution severity and extent will correlate with clinical manifestations, right, with regards to conduction abnormalities, arrhythmias, and heart failure. But over time, that inflammation either goes into forming a scar or it may get better, and if it gets better, it may come back, right? And so the triumph of MRI with LGE really is identifying scar, and you know maybe there's some utility in identifying edema and inflammation, but maybe not prime time yet. But the, that pathophysiologic evolution, it's really helpful for the scar, whereas PET scan is really very useful for identifying inflammation. And because that's that sort of dynamic process of inflammation getting better with treatment, coming back as you scale back treatment, we have this thought of using serial PET images to guide escalation or de-escalation of therapy. So it's very useful. But before we get there, we have to make the diagnosis. And if it's a pathologic diagnosis and the yield is low for endomyocardial biopsy, how do we make a diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis where we feel sufficiently confident to start things like steroids and monoclonal antibodies? Absolutely. I think, you know, you summarized that very well. And then before we get to the diagnosis, which is also a little, we need to kind of devote some time to that. It's important to emphasize that, uh, again, the pathologic process is patchy in nature. So it's not as easy as in amyloid that it's this diffuse process, subendocardial. You can go, you put a biotome and often affects the RV the same way it affects the LV. So you go in, you biopsy, you're good. And, and it's easy to make the diagnosis. In, in sarcoidosis, it's often a patchy process. And that process often affects the LV rarely affects the RV. And then, so you're doing a biopsy blindly into the RV and might come negative and it doesn't rule out anything. So, so you don't have the safety net of, of biopsy here. And by the way, uh, since where we are mentioning a little bit of the RV, any, any involvement of the RV really is a signal of a really bad prognosis for these patients. So that's one. And I think you hit it also in, in terms of utility of the, the complementary of, of both techniques, but also when to use them. And I think when you're making the diagnosis, we're going to get into that in a second. I think using both tests as a complement to each other, it, it really helps you or increase your certainty to make the diagnosis. But then you don't stop there. Then you need to treat the patient if you make the diagnosis. And I think in, in that particular occasion, it's important to have a PET. Even if you establish the diagnosis with MR, you're, you're super sure that this is actually sarcoid because it's a classic pattern. The patient presentation is classic. Even if you have biopsy, the termination or, or to make the decision of treatment depends on the presence of inflammation. So if, if you have sarcoid and you're presented with sarcoid at AB block and MRI say that, yes, you have sarcoid based on the, the features and we go to the algorithm and say sarcoid, it's not enough. You need to say, do I have active disease? 
because that's going to depend on you put these people in like really a strong immunosuppressants. So if you if this patient you image and, and then FTG is negative, well, you know, you put your, your pacemaker, your ICD, but you don't need to put patients in immunosuppression because there's no inf- active inflammation. It's a completely different patient that you make the diagnosis with perhaps MR and clinical presentation, but now you have, you know, FTG uptake, then that's going to be an important finding because now you're going to initiate uh, uh, anti-inflammatory and immunosuppressant therapy. And not only you stop there, you need to follow up this patient and see, is the treatment making the impact that I want? Is, is reducing the inflammation? The inflammation is getting worse, and that correlates with clinical, the clinical presentation. And, and they have ways to do that. So what we do is we uh, actually quantify the volume of disease, the volume of inflammation or active disease. What we do is we, we based on data from, from Dr. Blankstein, we use as a cutoff of 2.7 for SUV max. Because that kind of was the cutoff that was able to differentiate what was real disease was to maybe background or non-specific uptake. So by defining that threshold, you can actually do a ROI of those areas. And you can actually quantify what's the SUB max of the disease, but also what's the volume. So you can actually follow them up longitudinally and say, well, this patient came like three months ago, has like, you know, three mLs for volume and then has a SUB max of like eight uh, and, and now it's like the, the volume has going up and then the, the intensity of the uptake is going up. So it's not doing too good. Or you can say, well, the volume has gone down. The intensity of the inflammation is going down. So that's a good sign. We're in the right track. So you can use that also to kind of follow up your patient. And that's something that, you know, PET can really provide that cardiac MR doesn't have. And, and once you put the, the device, uh, an IC or something, although we have different techniques and sequences now to image these folks, even with the, with the devices, even with the old pacemakers and ICD. Sometimes the quality is not great. So, so in, in, for follow-up, I think PET remains the, the winner on that. Now, going back to your, to your question, so, so how we make the diagnosis? And let me start saying that by no means imaging makes the diagnosis by itself. So as we have been talking through the whole episode today, uh, imaging should be something that they use to support until you increase your likelihood when you make the diagnosis of, of any disease. And, and so you always need to start with your clinical presentation of the patient. So there, there are many criteria. The, the, the criteria that is used the most nowadays is the HRS criteria for the diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis. Before that, we used to use the Japanese Ministry of Health criteria. The Japanese Ministry of Health criteria was initially developed more for for research purposes, and it was kind of incorporated into the clinical practice. And, and I think HRS criteria, which is published uh, later, gets a little more, more practical for, for the use in, in the clinical uh, setting. So you have two ways to, to make the diagnosis. The first way is what is called the histological diagnosis, in which you don't need to have imaging on that. So basically, you have a patient has a clinical presentation is consistent with and then you go ahead and you decide to go for a biopsy. You're lucky and you, you get a positive biopsy from, from the myocardium showing non-cassiating granulomas, which is the classic feature of sarcoid, and then you're done. So you, you have a patient who has the symptoms and has cassiating granulomas. That's often not the case So that we see in clinical practice. The clinical case that we often see or that we commonly see in practice is that case of a patient comes with a a suspected diagnosis based on clinical features, and the patient has a diagnosis of sarcoid, but extra cardiac sarcoid. So the patient has long sarcoid, you get a biopsy of any of the lymph nodes there, and then you know that there's non-cassiating granulomas there. Now, the question is, is this patient having cardiac involvement? So how you get that? And that's where the imaging can, can help you. 
Because to make the diagnosis based on the HRS criteria, you need to have, as I said, extra cardiac sarcoid. And you need to have one or more of the following. You need to have either a cardiomyopathy that responds to steroids. You need to have an unexplained reduction in the EF. You need to have unexplained sustained cardiac high degree AB block. Or you have imaging findings that are supportive of sarcoid. And then again, here's when, when you get into this criteria, then they just said patchy uptake, but then you need to incorporate also your spectrum of likelihood when you're incorporating that into the diagnostic algorithm. So is this is a possible, is a probable, is a highly probable based on your MR or based on your and your PET. But this is where imaging kind of plays a role, which is the, the, the vast majority. And of course, you need to have no other explanation for the presentation and, and the and the findings from a cardiac perspective, which again makes it really hard. As you can see, getting to the diagnosis is hard and it really requires a, a multidisciplinary team of, of experts that really understand the disease in, in centers of excellence that can put together from an imaging, from a clinical presentation, all the pieces together and, and reach out to the consensus that this patient would benefit or not from going to the next step in treatment. What really helps also on PET, and I think El Jefe already commented on, is now getting to the imaging point of things, is that the, the identification of this uptake in the, in the extra cardiac foci, it really, it really helps. And you already as well pointed out, sometimes you see it, it, these patients with nonspecific uptake in the lateral wall that by itself is really hard to really say or put the label of highly probable based on, on just kind of one single spot of FTG in the lateral wall with, without perfusion, without LDE and so forth. And, and, and similar to what you reported, we have seen in our experience that some of the folks with arrhythmogenic or genetic cardiomyopathies can have this, also this uh, FTG uptake in isolation on the, on the lateral wall. Wow, Aldo, that's a great run through the use of imaging for the possible diagnosis and follow-up of cardiac sarcoidosis. And just to close this chapter, I'll tell you that actually our patient did have a positive PET with a mismatch perfusion to FDG uptake and also had extra cardiac uptake of FDG in lymph nodes, for which he underwent a lymph node biopsy that showed non-cassiating granulomas. So as Aldo just explained, we were able to make a clinical diagnosis based on HRS criteria, given that we had histologic diagnosis of extra cardiac sarcoidosis and the PET positive result with the MOBITS 2 or high degree AV block. So this patient fulfilled the clinical diagnosis of cardiac sarcoidosis and was started on immunosuppression. A couple of things just to add to what you guys said. It's fantastic summary of how we approach these patients and use imaging as a component of the diagnostic workup. So whether you're using the Japanese criteria or what commonly right now as a clinician, ordering these tests, you should be following these criteria, the HRS or the Japanese criteria, not just a single imaging modality. So the other thing about important about imaging, it's not only important for diagnosis, it's important we didn't talk about it for risk stratification. This has been shown from the PET side and the MRI side. So risk stratification, the amount of inflammation, the amount of scarring, the involvement of the RV or the lack of the involvement of the RV, all these things are prognostically important. There are many classic papers on that published on both on the MRI side and the PET side showing the interaction between extent of disease as detected by these imaging modalities and prognosis. So these are uh, important things. Looking forward to the future, there are a couple of things. One is now we use PET-CT. Mainly we use the CT part of the PET for registration of the image, right? 
But the future might not be, uh, we don't have to make the choice between PET and MRI. We might have many, I just reviewed recently a paper where they use PET MRI as the uh, the hybrid imaging part is PET MRI. So instead of using CT for registration of the images, they, they use the MRI for registration of images. It gets to be complicated. These patients, as you mentioned earlier, they're unstable. They have VTAC. We need to have access to resuscitation. All this equipment cannot enter the MRI suite. The other thing, the equipment that we have for rubidium generator, if you want to use, you know, Fusion imaging for these patients, the generator has to sit way out of the MRI room because it's metal and also the sheet. So it's logistically a bit complicated. But I think in the future, when you guys are practicing, you might have that technology at your disposal, which is the PET MRI. But what we noticed from the series that, Amit, you started is how we start is almost like children. We start with uh, first the thing is exploration. So we start, we have all these tools, we have all these toys, we start exploring them, echo, EKG, you know, TEE, SPEC, PET, MRI, CT, CTA, all these exploration around. And now when we mature, when these technologies mature or we mature with knowledge of these technologies and how to use them, we, we go to the exploitation of this knowledge. So we went from exploration, which is what's happened with amyloid, what happened with sarcoid, what happened with all these things we talked about, and now the exploitation. And that's what, what's fascinating about this is how is these our knowledge, our basic foundational knowledge of this is going to lead us to exploit what we know about these into ascertaining what we know about the disease or the treatment of the disease and so on and so forth. Well, I'll raise a toast to more and more exploitation of these incredible tools that we can use at our disposal. Erica, Aldo, Dr. Jimmer, thank you so much. Can't wait to get back into it as we talk about infective endocarditis next. Thank you. That was a great summary, Aldo. I learned so much. (laughs) 